Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied among the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of God in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that you have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Barb. You may be seated. Well, once again, welcome to Disciples Church. It is uh, such a privilege and an honor to be with you after uh, what I'm sure for some of you has been a long week. For some of you, it's been a good week. Uh, many, li- likely many of you have plans immediately following this having to do with Mother's Day. And so on that note, we do want to wish the mothers among us a-, a happy Mother's Day. We're so thankful for you. We're thankful for your presence in the life of our church. We're thankful for your commitment to this body. We're thankful for your commitment to your family, to the way that you love those around you. We're thankful, as I mentioned earlier in the prayer, not only for our earthly mothers, but for our spiritual mothers. Um, and for some of us, that's the same person, right, Often, oftentimes, but we can all think about those, uh, those women in our lives who took on a special role in helping nurture and train us uh, in our understanding of who the Lord is, and so we're so thankful for you and glad that you chose to be here today. If you're not already there, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Well, we're continuing on in our series through the book of 1 Peter. We're going into our third week uh, this week, and we're coming off the heels of discovering that Peter is writing uh, to a group of Christians who were in exile. In other words, these are people who are scattered throughout the known region of the world, largely Gentiles who had come to understand and know the faith, and he's writing to them about the suffering that they were beginning to experience because of their faith. These people had made a decision to to follow Jesus Christ. They'd experienced His glorious adoption. They'd experienced the pursuit of the Holy Spirit in their lives. They'd come to know Jesus for themselves. And just as they were experiencing forgiveness and freedom and grace and wonder in this relationship with God, simultaneously they began to experience suffering and persecution at the hands of the culture around them because of their faith in God. And Peter here is writing to encourage them that in the middle of this persecution, they ought to be reminded that God himself had done a significant work in them. That God had had begun this work in them and certainly was going to bring it to completion. That he had provided them a living hope that was not only going to give them a promise for the future, but a, a hope for right here, for right now. What is it to have joy in the midst of suffering? And what Peter said is that that living hope was brought about by the new birth, that they were born again into a new spiritual life with all the privileges and all the blessings pertaining thereto. And it's that topic that Peter picks up again as we read in this passage today. It's that topic that he picks up here beginning in verse 10 and notice how he starts. 
concerning this salvation, being born again, the new life you've been given, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now, there's a lot that's going on in those few verses, and it's pretty wordy, but here's ultimately what he's saying. He's saying everything that's been given to us in the Old Testament was given for the purpose of revealing the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus himself, and we're given an indicator as to who this Spirit is in the Old Testament. He's referred to here as the Spirit of Christ. In other words, the Holy Spirit's primary responsibility and his primary work in our lives is to reveal the work of Jesus Christ to us. And as an aside, as we read these words, I can't help but realize how comforting Peter's words must have been to these elect exiles because of this phrase that Peter uses when he says, Christ's sufferings and subsequent glories. See, that has a very particular application for those who are experiencing hardship. Think about your own life for just a minute. Isn't it comforting when you're going through something something incredibly difficult and painful to realize that there are others who have walked or are walking through the exact same thing as you? Think about how comforting it is when you're struggling as a parent to figure out how to train your kids or you're you're wrestling through very difficult issues to realize that your child is not the only one who's struggling and wrestling, even though it sometimes feels that way. Or when you get a difficult diagnosis or have a hard conversation with a doctor and realize that there are many who have gone before you and walked that very same path. The reason that people feel such camaraderie when they find someone else who's walked through those things is that they realize someone else has had a similar experience. And how much more significant might it be to realize that when you're suffering for your faith or as a result of your faith, your experience, according to Peter, is lining up with that of Jesus Christ himself. And the New Testament is full of that truth. In John chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus himself says to his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, in other words, your identity is not rooted in this world or the value system of the world or the perspective of this world, therefore the world hates you. And that concept is continued in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15, where it says this about Jesus Christ, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And just think for a moment about what that actually means, that Jesus himself experienced the, the full hardship of what it is to be human. He experienced the brokenness of relationships. He experienced abandonment. He experienced facing death in his own life. He experienced all of the difficulties known to mankind in and of himself. 
And the implicit reminder for the suffering Christians in this passage is that the suffering of their Lord resulted in His ultimate glorification, and therefore that same promise is made true for us. But notice then how he starts that verse in verse 10. He says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating. So imagine, for instance, what this text is saying. It's saying that as the prophets of old, the prophets of the Old Testament were predicting the coming Messiah, they inquired and searched of the Holy Spirit, wanting to know more about who this was. Has it ever struck you that that was true? We think about those Old Testament prophets in lofty terms. We think about them as heroes of the faith. We have all kinds of different attributes that we assign to them, but the reality is that their question is the very same question we would have had if we were in their shoes. They're being given an indication that there is this coming Messiah, and they're being told about Him, and the only thing they want to know is more. Tell me more about Him. So think about this for just a moment. Imagine, for instance, the prophet Isaiah. And imagine as the Holy Spirit is revealing to him the truth of what was going to befall the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 53, and he's, he, he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words about a Messiah who's going to carry the grief and the burdens of his people, a, a Messiah who, though innocent, is going to be led like an innocent lamb to the slaughter, a Messiah who took on his own body the punishment of sin, a Messiah by whom God's people would be counted as righteous. And can you imagine Isaiah hearing for the very first time from the Holy Spirit these truths and being filled with wonder that a God could possibly love him and his people so much to experience all of this on his behalf, and yet being filled with horror at what it was that Christ was going to go through. And verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 1 says that the prophets searched and inquired carefully of the Lord, wanting to know more about the Messiah, wanting to know more about Him and the timing of His suffering. It's as if Isaiah, for instance, would have cried out saying, Holy Spirit, tell me more about this man. Who is he and when exactly is he going to be born and what's he going to look like? Am I going to live long enough to see him? Is my family going to be those who are counted perfect because of his sacrifice? And that reaction of the prophets was certainly an appropriate one. It is only right and natural that they should want to know more about the one who would provide their salvation and restore them to right fellowship with God and grant to them eternal life. And Peter is reminding these Christians through their sufferings and their persecutions that the whole Old Testament exists to reveal the person of Jesus Christ, to point forward to His coming, to demonstrate the need for a Savior, that the Old and New Testaments do not tell separate distinct stories, but one grand unified story. That the Old Testament tells uh, tells the stories of the creation and the fall. That God created mankind for perfect harmony and relationship with Him, and that because of our sin and rebellion, that relationship with Him was broken. That wrath was waiting for us, but that a Redeemer was promised. And the whole New Testament reveals the person by which that redemption would be accomplished. As one theologian stated, the Bible has Jesus on every page. So Peter says, the prophets longed to know more about, this, about who this Messiah would be, but, verse 12, 
it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, how are the prophets serving Peter's audience? And by extension, how were they serving us? Well, they were contributing vital pieces to the story. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody do a mosaic. I remember, I don't remember exactly where we were, but I remember seeing one time somebody uh, putting together a mosaic on a sidewalk out on a street in a public area. And uh, at different points during the day, we were able to kind of walk past and see what this artist was doing. And as he began to lay in those little teeny bits of tile and stone, you couldn't quite make out what things were actually going to be. But as we came back through later in the day, you realized that out of these disparate pieces of of non-matching stone, he had actually created a whole cohesive image. And in the very same way, that's what the prophets were doing. They were telling a piece of the story, but they didn't have the whole of it. They, didn't see, they weren't able to see all of it together. And remember now the themes that Peter says these Old Testament prophets were intrigued by. It says in verse 10 that they preached grace. And in verse 11 that they predicted the suffering and the glory of Christ. In other words, they preached the gospel. So put now all of this together in your own mind. The grace that the gospel story preaches to us is made possible because of the suffering and glorification of Jesus Christ. And notice here Peter's response. He says, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've been given something so beautiful and so startling that the angels long to look into it. Has the beauty of the poetry of what Peter just said ever struck your heart? The gospel that we hear, the gospel that we get to read, the holistic picture that we get of Jesus through the completed Scripture, the wonder of what it is that He does in the lives of His people, the pursuit that He has for those who are lost, the redemption of souls, the adoption into His family, the imparting of the Spirit, all of these amazing truths that we hear and can read are things into which angels long to look. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is so unexpected that it never becomes ordinary to them. It's so deep that you cannot plumb its depths. It's so profound that it never grows old. It's so vast that you cannot reach the edge of it. And that's why the Bible says that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Peter's describing it here like this, that the angels are sitting there almost as if they're looking at what's going on in earth and seeing the gospel begin to unfold itself in the lives of people. And it's as if they're watching, sitting with anticipation trying to see what miraculous means God is going to use next to bring salvation to His people. And I wonder, brothers and sisters, does the gospel contain that sort of wonder for us? Do we marvel at the depth of the story of the gospel? Or is it so commonplace and so familiar that the endless fascination and the thrill and the amazement of the angels 
has just become ordinary for us. I think for us, the reason that we have to make the gospel so explicit and the reason why there's not a week that goes by at Disciples Church where we don't talk about the gospel in some form or another is because as soon as you assume the gospel, you've lost it. The beauty and the wonder and the magnificence of the gospel is lost once you begin to say, well, yeah, I know the gospel story, but let's get on to the things that I now have to do. The Bible never gets to that point. It always starts with the declaration of the gospel and everything else is birthed out of that. But notice that the gospel doesn't, doesn't merely provide a pathway to Christianity. It provides the destination as well. And look where Peter goes next, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, and as the old saying goes, whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask what it's there for, right? That's a familiar thing to us, but it's true. We need to ask why it's there. Here's what he says. Therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Let's just stop there for a moment. He's saying this. He's saying, therefore, having declared who we are in the gospel in the first 12 verses, Paul is now going to inform us of what follows. And he's going to give us two descriptions followed by an instruction. Look at the two descriptions first. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, or if you were to read this in the Old English, it literally says, the gird, to gird up the loins of your mind. And the reason that language is important is because in this culture, men wore long garments and robes traditionally as they walked around through their daily lives. And so if you were in need of doing something physical, some sort of physical labor, something that required mobility, something that required you to run or to go into battle, they had a particular way that they would lift the hem of that garment and that they would tie it all together so that their legs could move freely. It was called girding up your loins. And Peter in this passage is saying you need to do the very same thing with your mind. You need to prepare your mind to move. You need to be alert. You need to be cognizant of what's going on. You need to keep your head on a swivel. But not only does he say prepare your minds for action, he says also, therefore, because all these things are true, be sober-minded. And that word is exactly what it sounds like. He's saying, don't have the mindset of someone who's not sober. Don't allow your thinking to be fuzzy or distorted or blurry. Be focused. Don't be distracted. But I want you to notice that that's actually not the instruction. Those are just two descriptions of the instruction that he's going to give. And the instruction, by the way, I think is fascinating because it's not what we would expect or predict or write if we were given the responsibility of writing this book. Notice what he says. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, here's the instruction, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want you just to stop and think about that. Because here's what Peter is saying. He's saying proper spiritual preparation and sober-mindedness always leads you to set your hope fully on Jesus' grace. And what does that necessarily imply? It implies that a lack of spiritual preparation and sober-mindedness leads you to rely on yourself. And that is the opposite of how most religious people view their spiritual life. Most people, when they begin to talk about spirituality and religion and faith and all of those sorts of things, they begin to think, well, listen, I'm going to be really focused in my spiritual life. 
I'm going to discipline myself. I'm going to approach this the same way that I approach my diet or my exercise or all of these other things. And so because I take those things seriously and I really devote myself to their cause and I work incredibly hard, I'm going to apply that same notion to my spiritual life. And so I'm going to buckle up and I'm going to tighten my bootstraps. I'm going to get to work. I'm going to stop those behaviors and start these behaviors. And that's how I'll really mature as a Christian. And quite naturally, they also assume that it's a spiritual laziness that leads people to depend on grace. But Peter is going to tell us in this passage the exact opposite. He says, no, it actually takes mental vigilance. It takes focus to set your hope fully on grace. Why would that be? Because everything in this world, everything about our old nature, every value system that we see demonstrated tells you that your worth and your value and your significance comes from what you do. But in the gospel, and this is the reason why we need it explicitly laid out continually for us, Jesus is saying, because of my grace, Your worth and your value and your significance is not hinged on what you do. You are now free because of Jesus Christ. Free from the burden of performance. Free from the burden of earning your place. Free from the burden of impressing those around you. Your value now is set in who God himself has declared you to be. And therefore, Peter says, set your hope, set your confidence, set your security on the grace of Jesus Christ. And he ends that thought by saying that this grace will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So understand what he's saying here. He's saying we've experienced in one sense grace in this life. We've been given forgiveness. We've been given new life and adoption, the spirit of Christ indwelling us, the fellowship of the saints. We've been given the church to to, to bolster us, to encourage us for the sake of fellowship and community. But the promise here is that what awaits the believer in the presence of Jesus Christ is an ever fuller realization of his grace. A point at which the believer will not only be free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, but from the very presence of sin. As Paul states in 1 Corinthians, where now we see as in a glass dimly, then we shall see face to face. Our faith shall be made sight. So how is it that the saints of old, facing the persecution and the suffering that they experienced, could managed to hold up to everything that was going on. Just to use Peter himself as an example, and Dave referenced this in the first week of our series, just to use Peter as an example, history tells us that the way that Peter died is that he was crucified upside down on a cross. And that the reason he was crucified upside down is because he had stated, I do not deserve to die the same way as my Lord. What could possibly give this very same man who had abandoned Christ in his moment of need and rejected Christ in his moment of suffering, what could possibly give him that sort of motivation to face persecution head on and say, I don't even deserve to die like my Savior, so crucify me upside down? What motivates someone as fickle as Peter? 
the grace of Jesus Christ. The realization that what awaits him is seeing his Savior face to face. It's what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Philippians when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, if I live, if I'm in this world, as long as I'm breathing, my life is all about Jesus. Everything I'm going to live and do and say is going to all be obsessed with proclaiming his worth and his wonder. It's all about knowing him. It's all about preaching him. It's all about proclaiming him. It's all about seeing his grace in my life and in the lives of those around me. Everything is about Jesus. And you know what, what Paul then goes on to say? And if you kill me, do you know what I get? More Jesus. The proposed penalty that you're going to give me for proclaiming Christ is just more of the Christ that I love. How do you threaten somebody with the one thing that gives them more of what they want? And so finally then, Peter ends this instruction by saying, in light of the future grace that awaits you, verse 14, as obedient children. And we've talked many times about the idea that the imperatives of God's Word are always rooted in the indicatives of God's Word. In other words, when the Bible commands us to do something, it's always going to root that command in what God has already declared to be true about us. In other words, the Bible is never going to give you a command or give you an instruction that the gospel has not already empowered you to obey. That's what ultimately leads to that term that we use called legalism, which simply means that you're trying to earn what, God can, what only God can himself can freely give you. And so we've got to look to the indicatives. What does God say about me? Before we look to the imperatives, what is he calling me to do? And you see that explicitly in this text. He's saying, because you are a child of God, that's the first 11 verses of the book, because you've been adopted without reservation into his family, here we are now, we are to obey him, verse 14. And obedience is not always easy. Is it? I mean, if obedience was easy, we wouldn't have to be told to obey. But here's ultimately what Peter is saying. Obedience to a parent is infinitely easier when we know and trust that parent's heart. And what we've seen on display, particularly in the first 11 verses of this book, is the heart of God that he pursued and he elected and he saved and he adopted. And the reason that we can have joy in the midst of suffering and even in the face of persecution is because we know that God is never going to lead us into something that doesn't result in our ultimate joy. Now that word ultimate there is important because there's all kinds of things we're going to experience in this life that bring us momentary difficulty. There's all kinds of suffering in this life. Even if persecution, as we read about it in Scripture, never happens to us, there is enough suffering to go around. And if you haven't experienced suffering, you will. So how is it then that we find joy in all of this? How can we be assured that God is after our ultimate joy? Because what he is after ultimately is not our momentary happiness. Momentary happiness can be stripped away, and it gets stripped away every single day. We talked about that at length last week. But what he's promising is your ultimate joy. 
your final joy, your eternal joy that can begin to be experienced in this life and is brought to fruition in the presence of Jesus Christ. That is what God is after in your life. And it's what any good and loving parent wants for their child. What's the reason that parents discipline their kids? And of course, kids don't understand this always. Kids view discipline as hardship. They view it as being mean. They view it as all kinds of different things. But any loving parent knows that the reason you discipline is because ultimately you want something infinitely better for your child than what they're currently experiencing. How much more then does a perfect, loving God bring about joy in the lives of his children? Verse 14, as obedient children, now here's the instruction. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now remember where we started all of this. The imperative has to follow the indicative. If your intention is to read the instruction of verse 16 and go, all right, starting on my own, right here, right now, I'm going to be holy like God is holy. You are destined inevitably towards failure and depression. Or best case scenario, you do a pretty good job in your own estimation of being a holy person, and it leads you into pride, which is the sin that is most offensive to God to begin with. But remember where he started, because of who you are now as obedient children, desiring to reflect who our Father is, we're called now to holiness. Peter is saying, as obedient children, we ought to strive to reflect our Father's character. So as one commentator said it, it is appropriate instruction, for it is the nature of children to want to imitate their parents. Christians should delight in imitating God, both because He is their Father and because His moral excellence is inherently beautiful and desirable. To be like Him is the best way to be. And then Paul uses, or rather Peter uses, I did it, I warned you last week it was coming, and here Peter uses the word holy. What does that word actually mean? It means to be set apart, to be different. Well, to be different from what? because we've actually got to define that word or we get into all kinds of goofy theology and all kinds of goofy practice. We get all kinds of extra-biblical standards. We get all kinds of extra-biblical rules. We get all kinds of weird denominations that begin to build themselves around goofy ideologies that are not rooted in Scripture. So, so when God uses that word holy, when he inspires Peter to write that particular word, he must have something specific in mind. What does he actually mean? And he actually gives us the counterexample to holiness. He says, if you want to know what holiness is, I'm going to compare it to something that you know well, the passions of your former ignorance. He says, don't allow your mindset, your ideology, your thinking to be shaped by the things around you in this world, things that are going to pass away, things that are going to fade, things that do not last forever, things that do not reflect the nature and the character of God. Don't allow your holiness to be defined by your own standard of what holiness ought to be, but rather, if you want a point of comparison, look at what your life was like before Christ. And I don't even mean behaviorally, because some of you come from very moral and religious homes. And your life in a lot of ways may have been exemplary. What I'm talking about is the deadness of your heart, your unresponsiveness to God, 
your lack of love and affection for the Father. Peter is saying, don't allow that passion of your former ignorance now to shape your affections. Now that you know where your identity rests, allow your new identity to shape your affections. When I use that word affections, I'm talking about what is it that motivates you and drives you in your life? What is it that stirs your heart for God? What is it that drives you to love towards God? What is it that moves you towards obedience? What is it that pushes you into relationships with other people and a means to show them the love of God? And we get a little bit of a picture here in the quote that Peter uses, which comes from Leviticus chapter 19. It's the verse that we read in verse 16 of 1 Peter chapter 1 when he says, Be holy for I am holy. That's taken from the book of Leviticus. And if you look at that passage in the surrounding context in Leviticus 19, it's God speaking to the children of Israel and he's specifically instructing them about, instructing them about how their lives ought to look different from the pagan nations around them. He's saying, your pagan neighbors do this, but you ought to live for me. Your pagan neighbors are motivated by all kinds of violence and all kinds of wickedness, but you ought to be motivated by my love for you. That the way we live, to quote one commentator, should testify to our faith in God, show the character of God, and witness to the gospel. The behavior of the Christian should be an incentive for other people to believe. So to put a very fine point on this, if you are a political animal, and I'll admit and confess to you that I am, this week might be one where your attention has been utterly wrapped in what's been going on in our nation. And the tendency of some who know and love Jesus Christ can be to look at those who do not know love in Jesus Christ and go, how in the world can you live and believe and think and act the way that you think? To look at people with utter disdain in our hearts. And the question is, ultimately, what motivates you and what motivates them? Because ultimately, what makes you a sinner is not that you sin. Rather, you sin because you are a sinner. Your identity produces your behavior. Whether that's as a sinner in this world or a member of God's family, your identity produces your behavior. And the natural fallout of following the instruction of Peter in this passage is to realize that that unbelievers in this world may never pick up a Bible to read it, but they will read you. When they interact with you in the workplace, when they talk to you as you're grilling in your backyard, when they have conversations with you at the store, they are getting a picture as to who God is. And rather than being motivated by a self-righteousness that looks down on those who don't know Jesus, we ought to be driven by a compassion, a righteous pity, a merciful love for those who are so blinded by the sin and darkness of this world that they cannot see God. And to desire to proclaim this very same gospel to them. 
And we find the perfect expression of that gospel living in the high priestly prayer of Jesus in John 17. I'm going to read just a selected portion of it, but this is a prayer of Jesus to the Father, and here's what he says. My prayer is not just for these believers here. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. You see, in being obedient children and being like our Father, we give evidence to the fact that we are strangers and sojourners in a foreign land. And when we reflect the holiness of our Father unashamedly through word and deed, we proclaim the same gospel as the prophets and the writers and the disciples and the apostles and the elect exiles that have gone before us. So our prayer, brothers and sisters, is that we would anchor ourselves in the firm foundation of the gospel and rest fully on his grace today. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the words provided by your spirit through your servant, through your servant Peter. We thank you, God, for the explicit gospel. And we thank you for the reminder in it of every page of your word. That all of your scripture reveals our desperate need for a savior and reveals the wonder of that savior to us. And God, may we never take that for granted. May we view it as the wonder that it is, things into which angels long to look. It's as if the angels themselves are righteously jealous of what it is we get to experience in wonder and majesty at the work of God in our lives. So God, keep us in all points from self-righteousness. Whether that's the self-righteousness of thinking that through our own self-powered obedience, we can earn our place with you or believing that holiness is something that we get to define and live out independent of you, or whether it's the self-righteousness of viewing those that don't know you with disdain instead of with compassion, or whether it's the self-righteousness that isolates from a lost and dying world rather than displaying the wonder of the gospel through our words and deeds. God, may we be a people who are faithful to proclaim a gospel that we've experienced. Would we know the living hope? And God, regardless of what this life holds for us, whether it's suffering or difficulty or even persecution, may our experience be that of ultimate joy in you, realizing that nothing, nothing can rob the believer of a joy that you give. And admittedly, God, we confess that for many of us, sometimes that joy feels far off. Help us to find it by depending fully on your grace that we would steadfastly, sober-mindedly put our hope in your grace and yours alone. 
God, we thank you for your love and your compassion towards us. And it's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.